0: Well, come now long, expected Jesus, good morning everyone, welcome to Sailorville. if you brought a Bible with you, find Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, as we continue in our Christmas series, once upon a time, once upon a time came Jesus, we're picking it up in Luke chapter 1 and verse 26, we actually kind of flitted over this a little bit last week, we dealt with it a little bit, we're going to delve into it a little deeper this morning, And so beginning in verse 26, it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying. And tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You'll call his name Jesus. He will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called the Holy, the Son of God. Behold your relative Elizabeth, uh, who uh, was called barren, I'm sorry, in her old age, also conceived a son, and in his sixth month with her, who was called barren. We saw that last week. For nothing will be impossible with God. Now, let's say that together, okay? For nothing will be impossible with God. Now, I I really want all of us to say this, so let's try it one more time, okay? For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I'm, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Well, there's our theme, once upon a time came Jesus. We're taking this from the fairy tales, the children's bedtime stories. Most of us grew up on one or another, or many of them, and some of you are reading them to your kids even as I speak. Not right now, hopefully, but uh, at the bedtimes and whatnot. They always have those bookends, once upon a time, and they lived happily, what, ever after. They also have a number of compelling Uh, elements to them Uh, there's always a good character and there's always an evil character in these stories often there is a contrast between poverty and royalty such as cinderella and there's almost always magic involved or some some kind of enchantment in the story and finally there's always the goal that the good person the heroine whoever this individual is uh They and their lover will meet up again. The damsel in distress will be rescued, and they'll go off and live what? Happily ever after. So once upon a time came Jesus. His story is not only true, as opposed to the fairy tales that are out there, but it has many compelling aspects. In fact, so compelling, this story, as we said last week, continues to invite us, even us who would call ourselves already followers of Christ. It is calling us, it's beckoning us to believe. And for some of you, to believe and receive. Believe the story. Receive the Son, our hero, our heroine. And live, in the end, happily ever after. And so this passage captures some of those compelling elements. And they're worth taking in. So here's the first one we want to give you. There were prophecies that had to be fulfilled. Now, a prophecy is simply a prediction from of old. And these prophecies were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old. In some cases, thousands of years old. He, ever since Genesis chapter 3, we're in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned. Uh, in, in their disobedience, God comes to them. He issues the judgment which He promised would come. But it was not a judgment without hope. If you remember the story, God says to Adam and he says to Eve that there is coming a head crusher. There is coming one who will be of the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. And a careful reader would say seed of a woman. That doesn't make a lot of sense because women don't have seed. That comes from the man. So right there in the early part of of right after, right out of the get-go when man sins, God lays out a promise, a veiled prediction of the virgin birth. Theologians call it the the proto-evangelical gospel. That is the early gospel because God says to Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman, there's your reference to the virgin conception and birth of Jesus, will crush the head of the serpent. He's the evil character in the Garden of Eden. He's the evil character in the story of Christmas. He's behind the scenes in so much of the diabolical aspects of the Christmas story. Herod trying to kill the child, etc. Well, ever since then, God's people have been looking for this head crusher. The one who would come from the seed of the woman, affirmed later on in a much clearer prophecy, 700 years before Jesus comes, Isaiah put it like this. He said, Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, he says, The the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, Matthew tells us later on what? God. God is with us. It's a very powerful prophecy. And in doing so, he would deal decisively, mightily with sin and with Satan. Satan. And Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that, that the very purpose in Jesus is coming, and his impending death would be to stop and destroy the works of Satan. So Isaiah then later on, as he continues these, these prophecies, he's got many of them, and, and he later on gives us this grandiose prophecy of the life and the destiny of Jesus Uh, And and in all of his rulership, but he personalizes it for us in chapter 9. Again, some 700 years before Jesus came. And he says, unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulder. His name is going to be Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of His government and peace, there'll be no end on the throne of David, that which Gabriel mentions to Mary, and over his kingdom to establish it and to hold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts is going to do all of this. So these prophecies and others are found in the Scripture from thousands of years up to 700 years with with Isaiah and about 500 years before Jesus. Micah, the great prophet, one of the last of the prophets in your Old Testament, one of those minor prophets, tells us the exact location in which he would be born. And this is is the reason for the mad scramble, getting to Bethlehem, if you'll recall, and the story around Luke chapter 2. But here it is. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who will be ruler of Israel, whose who's coming forth is from old from ancient days here is a, even a reference to the eternality of Jesus and he's going to be born in this little hamlet called Bethlehem and you recall when Herod got news of this remember when the wise men showed up where is you know where is he you know born king of the jews well you know he shuddered he gets his He gets his experts together and they go and they find sure they can find the scripture. They, they, They seek it out. They get to Micah. They say, hey, Bethlehem, the scripture says he's going to be born in Bethlehem, which is sad because these scribes of Jesus' day knew how to look up scripture, but they didn't know how to look for the Savior. And so with that, Gabriel now shows up. And this is very interesting because Gabriel is sort of, he shows us that angels are ageless. He'd shown up six months earlier, if you recall, and he talked to Zachariah, told him he was going to have a son, he was going to be the forerunner of Jesus. That didn't go so well. He didn't believe. He literally is dumbfounded, literally dumbfounded. He can't even speak at this time. He's zip, not until his son John is born. Six months later, Gabriel shows up to Mary, but 600 years earlier, he had shown up and comforted Daniel, the godly prophet Daniel, who was trying to figure out what was going on and and how God was going to bring about his promised Messiah. And he prophesied that Gabriel told Daniel that the coming Messiah, Jesus, would be one who would put an end to sin, uh, would atone for iniquity would bring everlasting righteousness. I think we have it up there for you. And, uh, and what's more, he tells us that the anointed one, that's a reference to Messiah. That's what the word Messiah means, anointed one. So the Messiah will be, strong word, cut off. The Old Testament, whenever talked talk about somebody being cut off, it meant they would die suddenly and violently, which is exactly how Jesus died. But here, after 600 years... Gabriel shows up again, and having talked to Zechariah six months earlier, now he's talking to Mary. It goes much better, as we've already seen. Mary is some 50 to maybe even 60 years older than Zachariah, which tells you something about our children, how easy it is when people are young to believe. Now, Mary is a little bit more than a child, but i got to tell you, one great scholar of Christianity and early Christianity tells us that in the day of Jesus and Mary... The average age age for betrothal was somewhere between 12 and 13. So, I mean, at the very most, Mary might have been 14 or 15. She certainly wasn't any older than that. She's very, very young. It's almost inconceivable, but that was probably her age range. And there in the womb of a teenager, the promised prophecy of the coming Christ, by way of a virgin, would come true. So there were prophecies that had to be fulfilled, and they surely were. Here's a second compelling thing about this story that's not a fairy tale, but for real. There was condescending love, and this may be the most important point for some of you here today, who to whom life is beaten down, you're struggling, your spouse has left you, your Situation is life is very very difficult. You would not be looked up upon you'd be looked down upon for whatever reason Society is leveled against you But there is a condescending love That is true of god himself that absolutely Beams in this story a condescending love that had to be demonstrated Well verse 26 we're told it's mary. We've already learned she was very young She was Probably poor. She was from well. We know she was poor just from the sacrifice she would offer later on. You don't. You normally would bring a sacrifice after having a child. That would you know. You'd bring an animal. She's bringing a couple of turtle doves. That's that's only the poorest of the poor that would bring those kinds of things. And she's from Nazareth. I mean, remember what what they said about Jesus when he shows up. at Jesus of Nazareth. What, what good can come, can come out of Nazareth? But all of this is to show you and me how condescending God is for us. And aren't you glad? Kent Hughes put it like this. He said, Mary was a nobody from a a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. This whole Christmas story is a story of condescension. And Check out the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1, where you just have for 17 verses just a list of names where God, because Matthew is... He's written to Jews. The Jews needed to see that Messiah was coming from the right and royal bloodline. And so it starts tracking him. And sure enough, he does. But it, what's fascinating about this is genealogies in the early days almost never included women because of just the, the general you know, sort of condescending Way in which man looked at women in this day. But the Bible lifts up women. And it certainly does in the genealogy of Jesus. You've got several women mentioned there. But they're not just your ordinary women. They are women that you would normally want to gloss over when it comes to a genealogy. So if you were to read Matthew chapter 1, you come to verse 3. In the genealogy of Jesus is Tamar. Do you remember who Tamar was? Tamar was a woman who was so discouraged, she played she acted like a harlot and absolutely duped her father-in-law, of all things, if you'll recall. Her unsuspecting father-in-law. And from that had a child who would come into the lineage of Jesus. And then there is Rahab. What, what Tamar, what was an act, of, an act for Tamar was a profession for Rahab. Rahab was a harlot. If you know the story, Rahab was that woman whose she and her family were saved when when Joshua and company destroyed Jericho. Remember the thread that was hung out by the window and God spared them? Rahab. Rahab would become the mother to Boaz. And if you know your Old Testament, you know who Boaz was. Boaz would become the one who would accept Ruth's proposal. Ruth is also in the genealogy of Jesus. She's a Moabite. She's not even a Jew. And the the scripture made it very, very clear. Jews were not to bring Moabites into the congregation because of the way the Moabites treated the Jews. And yet there she is. uh, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 6 in the genealogy of Christ. And then there is, I'm verse 5, brother, because the last woman, yet another woman that's mentioned, is Bathsheba. She's called The wife of Uriah in Matthew chapter 1. But we all know who the wife of Uriah was. The wife of Uriah was the woman David committed adultery with. But there she is in the genealogy of Jesus. Because out of that adulterous affair, out of that sinful affair, came a marriage. And out of that marriage came Solomon. What is God telling us here? Isn't it clear? He's telling you that he loves you. He's telling you that no matter who you are, no matter where you have been, no matter what you have done, he loves you. And he is a condescending God. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what this is saying. You might not be able to become part of Jesus' genealogy, but you can become part of his family if you place your faith in Christ. I was thinking about the condescending love of God the last couple of nights during this celebration, we call "Rejoice." 600 women here in two different nights, great testimonies and song. And in the middle of it all, Tanner, Archer put together a little clip, a little montage of several of the women in our church that demonstrates the condescending love of God. Take a watch. And I decided to take my own life. I found out that um, my husband was unfaithful that began a battle for my marriage. That was very difficult. I was heartbroken. I was devastated. I had developed a great hatred and desire for revenge against the powers that be there. And it was terrible. And then my husband passed away and it got worse. I ended up in the hospital after drinking too much. And the next morning, I can clearly remember waking up alone in the hospital room, thinking there has to be more to life than this. I was diagnosed with an inoperable brainstem glioma. It's a rare tumor in my brainstem. After about six years of marriage, he decided to uh, to end the marriage. He told me that he wasn't sure that he ever loved me. He never should have proposed in the first place. Boy, you really find out where your faith is at when you go through something like that. Noah was diagnosed with. Um, liver disease. And I remember thinking, um, God, I, I can't go there again. I can't go there again. I'd seen what God had taken us through, but I I didn't choose to want to go through that again. The days and the weeks and the months that followed were traumatic and very dark. And my life just completely started to spiral out of control. I was consumed with guilt. I eventually considered myself an atheist. Drugs and alcohol were a huge part of my life. Really, the only way to get to a perfect God was to have a sacrifice, and Jesus was that sacrifice. He came from heaven, um, born as a man, and lived a perfect life, a life that I could not live and absolutely was not living. Even though I looked good on the outside, I knew in my heart that I was a sinner. But even through Noah's transplant, I saw God's security And I saw his surrounding mercy in our lives. I saw his compassion. And I saw how he can even use something terrible once again for his glory. When Christ is all you have, you realize that he's really all you need. And I can say without question that that's where my relationship with with Christ really grew exponentially. I decided, you know, maybe I should change my ways. And I was sitting one evening in the house there by myself in the dark, and I thought, God, you know what? I have been filled with hatred. As Pastor Pat had said, I had a hardened heart and an unforgiving heart, and I needed to change things. It was the strangest feeling. Like the weight was weighted off my shoulders, and I came out of the dark into the light. I soon came to understand that I was a sinner in need of a Savior, and I placed my trust in Christ. Treatment was considered a success and all medical reports since 2009 have stated that the tumor is considered stable. But I continue to think about how much has Christ forgiven me? So how could I deny forgiveness to somebody else after everything he's forgiven me? God has put in Scott and I's paths people who have struggled in the same way that we have struggled and we've been able to um, come alongside and help encourage those people God didn't want me to die that day and that I was supposed to stay here and fix this. God told me loud and clear, no. This wasn't how this was gonna be handled. I've been sober for three years and I haven't wanted cigarettes or alcohol or drugs. I know that God's enough. From that moment on, I was truly free. I was truly healed. I was able to give my whole self to my husband and to my children. And mostly to the Lord, because I had been holding him back for years, and I had had enough, and it was so good to come back into his arms and just really be his child and let him love on me the way I knew he did. Well, there's your illustration of condescending love. God taking you right where you're at, putting hope in your life. And even if we didn't have all the condescending examples of God in the Christmas story, which we do, we have Jesus himself. Jesus himself is enough, isn't he? The Bible says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he Was rich yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty we might be made rich. As we've been saying, fairy tale tells there's always poverty and royalty laid side by side. Jesus had them both. He had royalty. He became poverty, all for us, all for us. When Richard Nixon, the president of the United States, talked to Neil Armstrong when he stepped on the moon and said, you know, one you know, small step for man, you know one giant leap for mankind and all of that, Nixon declared to a world that was just watching with bated breath that the greatest moment in human history is when man walked on the moon. Billy Graham was quick to respond. He said, with all due respect, Mr. President, the greatest moment in history is not when man walked on the moon, but when God walked on the earth. And it wasn't just the greatest moment. It was the humblest moment. There will never be a more humble moment in the history of this universe than when God became a man. I mean, just try to imagine becoming a worm or an ant or something like that. And then, and then we're, not even, we're not even getting there yet. So this story is all about God's condescending love to take us wherever we're at. And bring us to heights we'll never ever be able to dream of to live happily ever after Here's a third compelling element from the story. There was a miracle that had to be performed Now this is all about the miracle the angel comes to mary He announces that she's going to give birth to the son of god The prophecy of isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 the prophecy even before that in the garden of eden demanded a miracle A virgin having a child without a man being involved, that's a miracle. And those with a low view of God's word love to point out that in Isaiah 7, 14, where it says, Behold, the virgin will conceive and have a son. You'll call his name Emmanuel. They love to point out that the Hebrew word for virgin really can be translated young woman. And it can. That's a true statement. True enough. But when Matthew In Matthew 1, verse 21, when Matthew brings this up, when he actually quotes from Isaiah, he uses a Greek word, Parthenon, for virgin, which can only be translated virgin. And so, he goes out of its way, the scripture continually goes out of its way to prove that Mary was a virgin. In fact, Mary's own declaration, you saw it there in verse 34, how can this be? I'm still a virgin, I've never known a man. A little bit earlier in verse twenty-seven, where it says, "It says to a virgin." That's who Gabriel came to. There's the word Parthenon. It can only mean virgin. And if you go over to, uh, I rather Matthew chapter one, which gives Joseph's view, the royal view. In this genealogy, I, I pulled up a couple of verses just for you to look at. Matthew chapter one. It says, "And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the notice how Joseph is described. Joseph, the husband of Mary." Of whom Jesus was born. Notice the very, very careful biblical wording here. Those of you who love grammar, you grammar lovers, that that phrase of whom there is referring directly to Mary. It's It's a feminine, singular, relative pronoun which basically means that Jesus came from Mary only. And then you've got The next verse we've got up here. Uh, Okay, now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When Mary, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, watch this, before they came together, she was found to be a child of the Holy Spirit. There's the miracle. Again, exploited. Back down to verse 24. There we go. When Mary woke, or rather, when Joseph woke from the sleep, remember, the angel comes to Joseph and says, hey, look, I know you're feeling bad about this. You're you're privately planning a divorce. What a cool guy he was. I mean, he, he was not going to publicly expose her. The angel said, don't worry about that. You know, he said, this is, this is the real deal. God has done this. He woke from his sleep. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, took his wife, but knew her not until she'd given birth to the, to the son. So, I mean, you, you, you look at this, this. He takes her to be his wife, yet he refrains from coming together with her, with her, which by, you know, in and of itself makes him the man of the year. Later on, they'd have lots of kids, but not until Jesus was born. And so with that, you've got all, I mean, bottom line, we've got a miracle going here. Do you believe this miracle? Now, the angel gives an explanation for it, and it's right there in verse 35. Look at it. He says, here's the explanation. He says, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. The power of the Almighty is going to overshadow you, and that which is Born in you will be called holy, the Son of God. Now, do you understand all that? Go like this. Because I don't either. But which is harder to believe? The creation account? How about, remember the day the sun stood still? Those of you who read your Old Testament, Joshua's fighting against the Gibeonites and all that, and they're going back and forth. Sun stands still for a day. Or maybe one of these other miraculous events in the Old Testament or even in the New. How about the resurrection? How hard is that to believe? And yet, when it comes to creation, the Bible says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Just states it plainly. The psalmist comes out later and says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the hosts thereof, by the breath of his mouth, he spoke and it was finished, he commanded and it stood fast. Psalm 33, 6 and 9. And so do you accept that? Some of our friends, particularly in the reform movement, I might as well come out and say, it, guys we read, we deeply love, appreciate, we even have a, uh, a fellowship with, have taken the Bible's literal account of God's ex nihilo, out of nothing, creative powers, omnipotent powers, and sort of allegorized them and interpreted The creation account in a non-literal way. They have bought into various views of theistic evolution, not because the evidence is there, because it's not, but because it has become, quote, accepted science falsely, so called, I might add. And so they, along with all the unbelievers of the world, would look at those who read their Bibles and they see things coming out of nothing, and they would say, You're an imbecile. You're ignorant. You're stupid. You're an idiot to believe such fairy tale language. Really, come on. It wasn't intended to be taken literal. And how about that day the sun stood still? If you're not familiar with it, you can read it in Joshua 10. Here is Joshua. They're fighting it out, you know, and the day's waning. Joshua prays, God causes the sun to stand still. Now, this is just amazing. And theologians, because they got nothing better to do but try to explain everything, the sun stands still, that means things don't revolve and this isn't happening, there's all kinds of stuff, equilibrium all off, Uh, can't happen. Because for that to happen, which would have been a miracle in and of itself, would mean that God would have to have at least a million other miracles going on simultaneously to pull off the sun standing still. Yeah. He is God, isn't he? I mean the very question, the very question is an affront to the omnipotence of God. And isn't that why Gabriel says to Mary, after saying this outstanding, this amazing statement that this, you know, the Holy Spirit's gonna come upon her, power of the Almighty is gonna overshadow her, that which is born in her is gonna be called the Son of God. That's the reason why, just as she's going, oh, 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 he goes, Hey, wait. Can you say it with me? Nothing will... Say it with me, please. (laughs) Nothing will be impossible with God. Say it one more time. Nothing will be impossible with God. Do you believe this? How about the resurrection? If you remove omnipotence, that means that he's all-powerful, If you remove omnipotence from God, then you are forced to find explanations to the extraordinary events that take place in the Bible. I like what the old Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle said, Faith never rests so calmly and peacefully as when it lays its head on the pillow of God's omnipotence. So what happened here? So... What happened here? Are you ready for this? I don't have a clue. But I believe it. I believe it. Like Mary. Let's just be servants of Jesus and say, you're omnipotent God, not a problem for you. You can defy nature. You can defy the natural course of events. And that's exactly, that is exactly what he did. Which is interesting to me, by the way, that most of our friends in the movement I alluded to earlier... Most of our friends accept the virgin birth account. Which is interesting to me. Even though it's just as impossible as creation or making the sun stand still or some other extraordinary event or the resurrection. And I praise the Lord they actually believe it. But they're pick and choose. The other day my wife and I had the privilege of speaking to the Sailorville youth. And it all started with a Q&A session. We had a great time going back and forth with them. And one of the questions posed to me was, Pastor, what do, you consider, what do you consider the most dangerous thing that the church faces today? Great question. And I had to think about it for a little while. And here's my answer, and I'm sticking to it. The most dangerous thing that the church faces today is the infiltration of so-called men of God who speak like who talk like they're orthodox who say they believe the bible is the word of god but they sort of handle it like a hot potato they don't want to they don't they just sort of flit around the truth they don't (laughs) preach the truth they don't preach the gospel or just sort of every once in a while accidentally stumbles you know out of the pulpit and you've got churches today that are claiming to be truth bearing churches that are not bearing the truth that's dangerous That's very dangerous. And then there are those who unwittingly undermine the truth of God by explaining away miracles. For crying out loud, what use is a miracle if I can explain it, right? I love what G.K. Chesterton said. He said, the riddles of God are more satisfying than the solutions of men. The virgin conception of Jesus was a miracle, and there's no explaining the unexplainable. So, this is part of this imaginary aspect of the Christmas story, the miraculous aspect of the Christmas story. Not the only one, but certainly the greatest one, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the miracle that had to be performed. And a fourth and final thing I would say this morning is there was a God-man who needed to come clean and leave dirty. Now, I don't understand the explanation of how Jesus, you know, became, you know, conceived in the womb of Mary. But I think I understand the reason behind it. If you've been with us in our study of Romans, we were told in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 that for by one man, Adam, sin came into the world and death by sin, right? So death passed upon all men. Why? Because all sinned in Adam. In other words, the transmission of sin from one person to another, one generation to another, apparently comes through the seed of man. The virgin conception, listen to this, the virgin conception canceled out what, Adam's, what Adam started by keeping Joseph out of the equation, out of the process. Jesus came into our world sinless and untainted. That's why he says later on in Romans 8 that, he, that Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He wasn't sinful, but he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, right? Peter says he was like a lamb without spot and without blemish and sums it up with these words. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. That's our Lord Jesus, amen? There's not a person here who could say that of yourself, right? We might have a struggle admitting our sin, but none of us could claim to be sinless. The virgin conception allowed Jesus to come into this world spotless. His deity and his obedience to his Father God, under fire I might add, kept him pure throughout his life. So that he could qualify as the sinless one to die for us. As we said last week, in his incarnation, when we say incarnation, we're talking about God becoming a man incarnate flesh in flesh okay in his incarnation if you recall we said jesus didn't become less than god he became more than god he became god man the point we made with that statement was this when jesus jesus was the eternal god the eternal son of god but at a point in time he became a man he was not eternally man He became man at this moment when he was conceived in the womb of Mary. And with that became God-man. Theologians say it's perfect humanity united with undiminished deity together forever. Jesus Christ. This is the reason why he can relate to us. This is the reason why we have no excuse to say, well, he's God. I mean, gee whiz, God's out there. He's like, whoa, I mean, what, can he, what does he know about What do you mean, what does he know about you? He became you. So he came into life and into this world sinless. But he left sin full, which is an amazing thought. It just absolutely blows my mind every time I say it, quote it, or even think it. But you know the reference, many of you at least, where it says, God, Father God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin. You see, to be sin. I mean, just look at those two words, to, or three words, to be sin. Jesus became sin. Just camp on that one for a while. He didn't have sin. It's declared again in this verse. But the whole reason for this is so the great exchange could take place. You could get your unrighteousness taken to Jesus. He would take his righteousness and give it to you. Which is a pretty nice thing for him to do, by the way. And thus you would have the righteousness of God. He came clean, left dirty. This is no fairy tale, though it possesses some of our favorite fairy tale elements. So, if Jesus is our heroine, if he's our hero, who's his lover? We are his lover. We are the damsel in distress. We, who trust in Jesus, become the bride of Christ. And if you will believe in Him, if you will trust in Him, that He died and rose again for you, and that and all of these purposes were in, housed in the virgin conception, He will come, and He will rescue you in your distress. And one day he will take you to heaven where you got it. You'll live happily ever after. Do you want that? Let's pray. Pray with me, will you, please? Father, thank you so much for this great story, which is more than a story, it is a reality, it is true. And it's better than any make-believe fairy tale we could ever conjure up in the minds of men. And thank you for Jesus. Thank you for fulfilling all of those promises you made thousands and hundreds of years before Jesus came. Right down to the nub, all the specifics. Right down to the place you'd be born. And causing this old teenage girl to become pregnant. And demonstrating your condescending love to us. And there are some here, Lord, who just need to experience that condescending love right now. There are some here, Lord, that are just struggling with life itself. And they just need to be reminded that you love them. And you've already demonstrated that. You demonstrated your love to them. While we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. Just take that in for a moment. And if you're here as one who would say, I'm just really struggling. These, these days have been the worst days of my life or these are some of the most difficult days I've had to deal with or my circumstances are so lowly. Well, you're in a perfect place to receive the truth of God. Thank you, Lord, for this miracle of miracles. I mean, next to the resurrection, the incarnation of Jesus is the most amazing thing we read about, let alone believe. And we thank you, our Father, for his great humility that he would come into this world clean but leave with our filth upon himself. And we're thankful, Lord, it didn't remain that way because the grave couldn't hold him. He rose victoriously, gloriously, in a most holy fashion. And as the story repeatedly tells us to believe, I pray that someone here today would believe. If you would say, that's me. I'm lost, I'm sinful. I believe, I believe this. I want this. I receive this. I receive Jesus. Would you just say that in your heart right now? Would you acknowledge your sin? Would you tell God you're sorry? Would you believe that Jesus who came into this world perfect, died for you and rose again? Will you do that? And follower of Jesus, would you love him a little deeper today as a result of his great love for you? And we'll give you the glory for these things, Lord, in Jesus' name.